double Elvis. It feels as if I have died a thousand deaths to end up here. Patterns and static that should have never even existed, melding into particles of sound, some sort of melody that is barely audible. My existence was a complete happenstance. I cannot stress that enough. And I feel the weight of that every second that I breathe. To understand what I create, you would have to understand who and where I came from. Like an oath through shared blood, my entire existence and life was built out of spite and revenge. This has been a constant theme in my life that often permeates my artistic practice and drives the melodies and textures I hear in my head that begrudgingly evolve and rises to an audible surface. Dear Young Rocker, there are going to be moments in your life that you remember, some you wish you could forget, and others you have no memories of whatsoever. Some might think it would be fun to be able to forget, but it's not. What is fun is waiting for you on the other side of it. The thing that gets you through it will be sound. The thing that connects you to the other side of your memory will be music. There will be moments when your life story, pieces of you, start to feel like a party trick, a cautionary tale, a means of making others feel something. Grace, strength, and unfortunately, gratitude. But you must remember, your existence isn't for anyone else. You are here for you. Even when you aren't sure of who that is anymore. Music became my guide, my map to my own memory, to help lead me back to who I was. But there is no before her now, and the person who was born from the wreckage of that moment was someone I never imagined I could be. Young Rocker. I was born, and then born again at 23. But it wasn't the new start one might wish for. Rubbing an oil lamp, hoping to be a better and brand new you. Riding your bike through the city is the closest feeling you'll get to flying. While riding through campus, I put my headphones in, drowning out the sound of the city. Students jaywalking ran across the busy street, cars slamming on their brakes to avoid hitting pedestrians. And suddenly, a group of tall blonde girls stood in a circle around me. Hey, are you okay? I thought I must have broken every bone in my body as I laid there. I moved my hands first to check if it was even possible. Next, I wiggled my toes and moved my feet. 
and then I slowly sat up from where my body had been thrown onto the pavement, next to the main street that ran through my college. I stared up at the tall, beautiful girls that hovered around me. From where I sat, they looked like giants. Are you guys a part of some basketball team? Volleyball, they said in unison. I can't remember their faces now, but they looked at me confused as to why I would even ask such a question in this moment. To tell you the truth, I don't even know what I was thinking. I guess I was in shock. I got up quickly, embarrassed, and I jumped back on my bike. Confused, I put my headphones back in and listened to the record that had been on loop all summer, desperately squeezing the last moments of summer into my fall semester, using music to remind me of what it felt like, something that I wanted to never end, what felt like the last summer of my youth. And I rode back to my car, which was parked a few miles off campus. Back in 2013, as a cyclist in Atlanta, it was just what you did. If you fell off your bike, you got back up and went on your way. It didn't matter why you fell off your bike. It didn't matter if a car almost hit you because of a jaywalker and you could have died. You pushed through, no matter what. Like my friend who went through someone's windshield and had to have a metal rod put into her leg. She almost immediately went back to work. She still rode her bike to the coffee shop every morning. Even if the accident wasn't your fault, the police always ticketed the cyclist. So if you were able to ride away and no one was hurt, it was in your best interest to do so. We saw it time and time again. One by one, all of my friends were getting picked off by people texting and driving, spending weeks and months in the hospital while their court dates piled up. I was the type of student who worked 20-hour days for weeks at a time. I would stay up working in my studio all night, sometimes leaving around 1 or 2 in the morning, and then go to a party until 3 a.m. I'd come home and wake up around 7 to make time for my morning run, a five-minute mile every morning, followed by an hour of tap, and then an egg white omelet for breakfast that consisted of five baby tomatoes, one celery stalk, and four shredded baby carrots with chopped onions. I'd stir the egg whites and ingredients in my large cup and then dump it into the pan. But that was before. And this was now. I got back to my car, threw my bike in the trunk of my Ford Explorer, and headed back to campus to study in the library. I had my first art history exam coming up, and I didn't want to fall behind. I'd heard this professor was extremely difficult. I pulled up to the library and parked on the street. Once I got to the library and sat down, I realized that my hands and palms were covered and dripping with blood, down onto my shoes and onto the floor. I just, I just needed a Band-Aid and then I could get back to work. I walked up to the help desk, unsure what to do, and asked for a Band-Aid. They looked at me with horror. For a second, I was afraid they would tell me they couldn't help me, 
and I would have to go somewhere else and lose time in the library studying. They brought out a first aid kit and some wet paper towels and helped me patch myself back up. I thanked them and headed back to the section of the library where there were rows of computers next to empty chairs. I sat down, pulled out my notebook, and laid it on the desk next to me. I placed my fingers on the keyboard and tried to log into my accounts. That's weird. I noticed typing was difficult. The passwords I was typing was incorrect almost enough times to lock me out of my own account. My own hands on the keyboard felt foreign to me. Finally settling in after all those clumsy attempts to log in, I opened a blank document and started to type. Looking to my right where my notes were, I read, Late Paleolithics in Egypt. I turned to my left to type the phrase in my notes, and the words were completely gone. I turned to my left to type the phrase into the computer, and by the time I had pivoted my head, the phrase had completely left my mind. Turning to my right again to read what I had written on the page. Ah, I see. Wait, what was it again? Confused, I looked down at the clock. Over an hour had passed. The page on the computer screen remained completely blank. I'm not sure what was happening, but figured I must be shaken up about the accident. It may be best to just go home and take the night off, I thought. I brushed myself off, gathered my belongings, threw everything back into my backpack, and I left the library. My plan was to return to campus the next day once I settled back into myself. From that point on, everything is a blur. I started using my own Instagram account as a means of keeping a log of everything I was doing. Thumbing through videos and pictures and places and events I had no recollection of. Events that had only taken place days earlier. Hi, my name is Nadia Marie, and this is MTV Cribs. I have a concussion right now. I'd always had a dark sense of humor, laughing my way through whatever I was feeling. I had laughed when my harp string broke in the middle of a recording session, and then the power went out from a storm. I had laughed when I broke my arm and a neighbor, the one who had just seen me wipe out on my skateboard, refused to believe it was broken. I had laughed when my friend Abigail drove me from hospital to hospital, trying to find an emergency room that would see me without insurance. I laughed the time they cut an infected cyst the size of a lacrosse ball out of me. They told me it was going to hurt and I would feel everything. I laughed right before cramming my own sweater into my mouth in what felt like some sort of medieval torture. This wasn't any different. I found it almost comical that I couldn't remember anything. And I thought if I just kept laughing at myself, eventually the fog would go away. The video pans to show a messy bed. Notes taped next to the door asking if I'd take my vitamins yet today. My harp inexplainably leering at me from the middle of my kitchen. My friend Dan saw the post and quickly contacted me, offering to take me to the hospital. He had told me to pack a bag for his house and he would pick me up. He told me that someone with a bad concussion shouldn't be allowed to go to sleep. He said he was going to try and keep me awake and then take me to get an MRI in the morning. 
Dan told me that he had been listening to the police scanners again. He'd heard that an ambulance was called to the college due to a reported bicyclist getting into an accident. But when the ambulance and police showed up, the cyclist had fled the scene. He laughed over the phone when he pieced together that it was me. He was always doing weird things like that, listening to police scanners and witnessing crimes in person as they happened. We both had the most bizarre knack for serendipity, and we provided each other with the constant relief from those around us who could never believe the absurdities that were magnetized to our existence. No one ever believed that a girl broke Dan's heart so badly that he developed Guillaume and he had to relearn how to walk. No one ever believed him that his best friend was a porn star or that he was friends with the Dandy Warhols and he hung out with the real Penny Lane. There were images and videos and other forms of proof, phone calls we tried to listen in on as we crowded together in booths of bars around him, begging to place the call on speakerphone for all to hear like annoying children crowding next to him as he rolled his eyes. It was insane to me that people acted like this and thought he was just crazy and making it all up. We had that in common. People tended to not believe us, what our lives were. I had moved back to Atlanta after witnessing someone die right in front of me. I'd heard the rumors of what people thought, No one believed why I had actually left town. It felt hurtful to know that there were people in this world so ignorant due to the comforts of their own shelter. All those little weird things people blamed us for. The things people said we were either in our heads or our faults. It was always our fault to them. But Dan understood. Some of our friends and people we knew found our lives and experiences astounding and others found it annoying. Eventually, I would be challenging rumors that I wasn't even aware of or had the ability to defend. We never played the victim or got caught up in the little hearsays people said about us. We never dwelled on anything that happened to us. We were always just laughing at the absurdity of it all, of living, of our lives. Dan and I had met each other over the internet when I was young and making music. He was one of the many older boys I talked to that I thought was cute. Most of my friends at the time were in college, so it wasn't uncommon, but the timing was perfect for a 13-year-old girl to chat with someone who looked exactly like Connor Oberst circa 2002. While most girls had pinups of Justin Timberlake on their class binders or in their lockers, I had Connor. But Dan was like an older brother to me, very protective, always keeping an eye out and making sure no harm was ever done to me. Years later, he would laugh when he told me what it had been like to look exactly like the lead singer of Bright Eyes during the peak sad girl mania of the early 2000s. Once he was on MTV, it was over, Dan said. It was insane. His story, like bragging jocks reminiscent of crowds of cheerleaders circling around to gain just a mere glance or soft shoulder brush after a winning game. In 2002, Connor Oberst was our star player, the circle of the spectrum of toxic masculinity folding back onto itself, touching the ends, teaching boys how to write poetry, drink, and treat women badly with avoidance and emotions. 
something teen girls who avoided popular culture were too naive of at the time to even know. I felt foolish for being just another girl who connected with Dan at that time for no other reason than thinking he was cute and looked like Connor O'Burst. I was no better than the stalkers who showed up in his closet or the girls who followed him around campus. I felt thankful he wasn't a pervert or the type of guy at shows who made friends with younger girls to try and hook up with them. Looking back, he was a huge influence on who I was and would often trade mixtapes with me, like a cute older brother guiding my musical preferences as I entered into high school. Because of the music I made and the sound of my voice and the way that I dressed, most people assumed I was much older than I really was. The books I read, the shows I was playing, the weekends on tour, the weeks taking care of myself and on my own, I was 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. I never really had a childhood, so there wasn't a girlishness to me that made others feel ashamed to be around. Most people either didn't know what to make of a child reading notes from underground outside of the Mira or Azure show, or maybe they just didn't notice. Once at the age of 14 in the middle of Florida, I ran into the real Connor Oberst outside of a venue while reading Camus. He stood there above me waiting for me to fangirl and get excited, or ask for an autograph. But instead, we both just sat in silence for almost an hour in the Florida heat while he wore a black hoodie. No man was God to me, not even then. And I didn't believe in worshiping musicians. Anyways, Dan agreed to pick me up later that night to keep an eye on me. I just had to pack a bag and make something for dinner. After circling my house, moving from the living room to the kitchen, to the bedroom, and back to the living room, I looked at my phone and noticed four hours had passed since Dan had called me. It was now the middle of the night and I had packed nothing. I need to pack shampoo, I thought, and I would head to the bathroom. Then before I remembered why I was in the bathroom, I would think, I need to pack something to eat for dinner. After four hours, I had absolutely nothing to show for it. When Dan finally arrived, he saw the trouble I was having and helped me pack a bag while I made a salad for dinner. I put the salad in a Tupperware container and we left for his house. When we got to his house, I brought my things inside and took my salad to put it in the kitchen, in the refrigerator. He introduced me to his roommate who was filming a video for his YouTube channel. Dan's roommate asked if I wanted to be in it, but she's, she's concussed. I thought it would be funny to be interviewed for an online show while having a severe concussion. Dan had packed me pajamas and for whatever reason, nail polish. I couldn't remember if I told him to pack it or whether he knew I liked to paint my nails every night before bed. I sat down in front of their little studio setup, in front of the bright lights and backdrop, and I painted my nails while Dan and his roommate interviewed me as I slurred my speech. It's hard to tell when people are laughing at you or laughing with you when you have a head injury, and it saddens me to think about this moment. Dan eventually realized it had been a bad idea and demanded to put an end of what we were doing and insisted we all get to bed. I'm going to go eat my salad before we go to sleep, I said. There was an uncomfortable silence between the two of them, 
And they both looked at me with such pity, not knowing whether to weep or laugh, and said, Nadia, you already ate your salad. Dan and I had shared a bed together for years prior while he was visiting from Portland and staying at his parents' house. I trusted nothing would happen between us because we were like siblings. He had never made a move on me at any point in a decade of knowing him. I put my pajamas on and tucked myself into bed. He brushed my hair back with his hand and gave me a soft kiss on the lips. The only reason I remember any of this was because it's burned into my brain forever, how taken aback I was by the softness of his lips. They didn't feel like any other boy lips I had ever kissed before. His felt like girl lips. They reminded me of the first time I kissed a girl. How surprised I was that their lips were so much softer, physically and emotionally present, with intention and kindness and care. It was just different. I found it funny and I went to sleep. He told me he was going to take the couch. I was praying all of this emptiness would be gone by morning and that all of this was just a silly little dream. The concussion felt like the time my ex-boyfriend Kevin's dad gave me a pot brownie. He spent most of his summers at music festivals and going to Bonnaroo and listened to better music than I did. He gave me the brownie as a congratulations for selling my first piece in a gallery, and I went home and ate it alone in my house. I was stoned for three days. I tried working out, I tried going for a run, doing my normal routine, but nothing would shake me from being that stoned. I tried sleeping it off. Nothing seemed to do the trick. Eventually, I came back to myself again and promised I'd never eat an edible, ever again. I felt the same way about this concussion. If I just kept calm, and kept going about my week, it would eventually pass, right? In the morning, Dan drove me to the hospital to get an X-ray and an MRI. They took one look at me and said everything was normal and sent me home. Everyone was telling me I was fine, that I should just rest and eventually it will pass. The last few days had felt like years and I couldn't remember any of it. Dan dropped me back off at home and I laid back in bed in what felt like an endless fog. I had a show coming up, a music video shoot, and exams next week. Maybe I could take a few days off. Just a day, or two, or three at most. Just a little weekday weekend. I could do that. That's all it was. This was just a weekday weekend. All that I remember about what comes next are pieces. Standing in front of a man's office on campus. My professor looked concerned as I showed up to class and then lost the ability to communicate once I got there. By the time I got to campus, I wouldn't remember coming to school. I wouldn't be able to drive myself home. 
I would look down at my hand and see blue ink that someone had scribbled on my fist. I was now resorting to leaving little notes for myself. It was like my future self sending me little letters of warning, trying to help me, trying to save me. I was on a bizarre type of autopilot, trying to keep up with the extracurriculars of my past life. I felt like I wasn't getting better, I was getting worse, and I was losing pieces of myself along the way. It felt like every step I took, more loose change kept falling through the holes in my pockets and I was too unaware to notice. I would post online that I needed a ride home and someone would eventually come get me. People I knew, some people I didn't know. Actually, to be honest, I wasn't sure of who I knew and who I didn't know. So many people were kind and patient and supportive during this time, but others weren't. They either couldn't believe what they were seeing, or they didn't want to confront it. The glaze over my eyes and obliviousness that consumed all of my facial expressions. I became a reminder of something we all want to push away, ignore, and forget. That we are all fallible beings, breakable creatures, delicate monsters never as strong as we think we are or intend to be. Immortal one hopes, but breakable is the fate that binds us all. It is the one thing that we truly all have in common. I remember thinking Live Forever was my favorite Oasis song, but even that wasn't true. My existence became a slap in the face to our youth, prosperity, and what it looked like to be a capable-looking female living in your early 20s. I became untouchable, an unsightly reminder that everyone wanted to push away and not be heard or listened to. It was easier to believe that I was fine than it was for an older male doctor to admit something could be wrong. Bandmates and friends I had had for decades stopped returning my calls after a few days. Years later, some apologized, explaining that it had been too hard to watch somebody struggle to speak. Some people thought I was going to be lost forever. They said they could see it in my face and hear it in my voice. I was different. At some point, the director of the ceramics program told me that if I didn't come to campus and clear my studio, all of my equipment and everything I had made would get thrown away. I had paid for the class, I had paid my dues, and worked hard to secure a studio space within the program, but it didn't matter. There wasn't room for head injuries in the program, and eventually, I was told to withdraw. I was a part of a student body government, was associate chief justice chairing internal affairs, and was on the sexual misconduct board. I was in the ceramics club and the support group director of AMF. I was allowed to attend club meetings when it was possible for me to do so. I can't remember if the school was supportive in these moments or if I just showed up in what seemed like a drunken state and hoped for the best. But it didn't matter what other people thought. I was determined to make things click back into place no matter what it took. I just had to make it a few more days until my show. It can happen in an instant. The bridge of a song, 
The sound over the radio forces memories and moments to come flooding back from car rides, speeding down interstates next to the first boy you ever made love to. Or the song that played over the speakers while your friends passed around cigarettes and filled smoke in small cars. The sound was as loud as the smell, something that burned into your brain, scarring and remaining forever on your arm as the amber tip brushed your skin. No matter if you remembered where the scar came from or not, it was there forever, no matter what. Glimpses of innocence and tragedy and lovely mistakes you now miss. Memories, memories you think you'll never forget. Time you think will always be there. Moments you feel you can recreate at any given point again. And sometimes you can. When a simple melody flashes on the radio of someone's car speakers, a sound from years ago starts to play, transporting you to another time. Music is overlooked by physicists and theorists. It is the only form of time travel that we have. Back into that feeling. Back to who we were as children and young adults falling in love. Moments of yelling, mumbled lyrics with friends, crowded venues with sweat from the other person beside you dripping down onto your shoulder, pushed up against side by side like soldiers, all the vibrations beat against your chest. It is unforgettable. Memories of pushing yourself through a crowd of hundreds of people up to the very front row to feel something, to feel anything, to witness something firsthand, to witness your history. That moment where sound becomes your entire body and you can no longer feel your own pulse, the music becomes it. It consumes your 12-year-old frame, flooding with feelings of excitement you hope would never go away anytime you enter a venue. You never want to forget that feeling. But even if you do, it will come back. Sounds can revive moments pouring back into your heart decades later. A moment that you didn't know was even missing, clicking back into place with every snare hit. Music was always attached to me. It helped guide me. But I couldn't ever remember creating it. Not after the accident. Dear Young Rocker, Season 4. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Elvis. 
Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Tatoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.